Welcome to Man to Man, the interviews of the sports antidote. Why do we call it Man to Man? Because we don't play zone, Chief. This ain't no men's league, 50-year-old, YMCA, 212 cuckoldry. We man up on the sports antidote, and we're going to do that with Kevin Dombrowski today, a hilarious comedian. Can't wait to have him on. It's probably going to be a hoot. I uh, can't believe I just said hoot, but there's no going back now. Anyway, follow me on Twitter at Danny underscore Belts with a Z. Danny underscore B-E-L-T-Z. Brand new to Twitter. Follow, this, follow our page on Twitter at Sports Antidote 1. We've got Chuck Knobloch following us. Come on, man. You can jump in too. And then the Instagram, The Sports Antidote. Be sure and follow all of those. And be sure and catch the Sports Antidote regular episode tomorrow night as Dickie Salvo and the Drunk Neighbor talk about the MMA ticket coming up. We discussed Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitic crazy ass amongst other things happening in the world. But if you can bet on it, we'll probably talk about it, except for the simulations you can bet, because those are rigged. I've already lost $800. Don't do it. Anyway, a foreword from the head coach of the LSU Tigers, Coach Ed Ogeron. Hey, how's it hanging Antelope uh, You know, we got a good show coming up here on this uh, Sports Antelope Remix, Reloaded, uh, you know, Remax, whatever it is. Uh, we got, you know, we got a good comedian coming on. Boy named Kevin Dombrowski. Like like the Saints used to have that boy Jim Dombrowski. You know, but I don't, I don't think they're related or nothing. But, uh, you know, he's, he's real funny. They, they call him the Creepy Uncle. You know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how he got that nickname, man. I mean, that's kind of crazy, you know. But uh, speaking of nicknames, we, we, we got that drunk neighbor. We got that uh, artist formerly known as the North Korean Santa, Danny Belts, whatever his name is, you know. We got a operations specialist. Uh, we got a new antelope uh game room and all, you know, we got foosball, pool, all that kind of stuff, you know, Drunk Neighbor loves that, we're going to put a beer tap in there for him, I think, but you know, we're going to be talking about a lot of good stuff, you know, got a lot of stuff going on right now, uh, stuff out there with MMA and all that stuff, you know, I mean, there's still sports, baby, you got to look hard, Korean baseball, you know, that coronavirus is coming back, baby, but Coach O, he's strong, he's going he gonna to fight it, you know, we, we coming, and I'm Coach O, bitch, go Tigers. It's game time, baby. Let's bring on the talent. Stand-up comedian, one of New York's finest, Kevin Dombrowski. You know, you get interviewed by a lot of people at some at points in your career, and I, I imagine you get asked the same questions all the time. Who's your biggest influencer? When did you realize you want to do stand-up? Not that those aren't important to the Anadocians listening, but we want to talk about more about the other type of things going on in comedy than that. Not to take anything away <laughs> from you, but I think this will accent your personality better if we get into some crazy shit. Can I can I guess what the is the first question? What drugs are you on? Is that I was gonna say? So is cocaine, crack, like what's the real what's the real deal? <laughs> you just you stick with drugs and pills. I mean, excuse me, alcohol and pills, like I do, or what? I mean, what's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, look, if you want to get into it, Jameson and Cutting pair very well together. Jameson. So I got a funny story about Gino Visconti and Jameson when he was on the wagon when I went to New York. What a waste of time that was. Anyway, I'm kidding. You know, I love that I love that he convinced you he was on the wagon because oh, chances wow. are chances are that night he was drunk in my living room. That is unbelievable. If that's the case, uh we're gonna have we're gonna have an issue with that. I don't know. I'm not gonna get too too far into that. But so um <laughs> great. Was he on your living room in October of last year? Because I'll be pissed. Um <laughs> we'll get into who Gino is for those guys you know, who don't know. But uh, look, let's just let's get into some of the behind-the-scenes questions, um, some things that I think are important, but we're going to get into some really some ground roots, some really uh, some really nice stuff here, as I feel. So look, you know, tell us about life before stand-up. I know you get asked this all the time, but I mean, 
you like Jake from State Farm and all of a sudden you realize one day instead of sitting in a seat in khakis, you wanted to go ahead and just stand up and tell jokes? Maybe how does that work? <laughs> no, life before stand-up sucked. I <laughs> I was I was working at a like a fried chicken restaurant. Um like all throughout high school. I was a delivery guy. I you know, I was like, um, dude, I was your normal fuck up, which is why I'm a comic now, because now I just get paid to fuck up. Um, but it it was it was like it was something I've always wanted to do. Um, I've said I've do- it's like well documented for me that I um I went to school for criminal justice because my dad was a cop. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there was no one for me to beat up. No, uh, <laughs> my, fa- <laughs> my father was a cop. But, um, you know what? Look, when I went to school for it, it just uh, I grew up in a different era. When my pops was a was a police officer, and I I realized I wasn't gonna uh, be a part of that same era, and uh, which is you know like uh, look I, I know you guys are more right leaning, so I don't know if you uh, I, I don't know if you're jerking off a cop in your room right now, but I do feel like uh, I feel like the newer age of police officer is why we're um, I don't know I I don't want to say why there's civil unrest because there's been po- police brutality forever, but it's uh, the new age of cop are way more egotistical than the old age. Does that make sense? Like the, you like mean the, like the old school, you know, like the beat cop yeah. walking around the neighborhood yes. slapping his baton yes. on his hand like, how you doing, Carol? Sounds like a meatloaf smells good. Those guys, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. First off, I don't know where the fuck you grew up. That, 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 that's the next thing. It's what the movies <laughs> depicted. I don't know, man. I mean, yeah, it's like Andy I'm Griffith if he was I'm a done. police officer. Kevin, I'm down here in New Orleans where the NOPD makes the NYPD look like fucking Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. All right, I'm telling you, right? <laughs> come down here, brother. Steve, you'll get it. It's ridiculous. But no, I'm with you. I, I totally am with you on that. Right. So, so like, like my dad, uh, my dad was the guy that like, if he called you like tagging up the side of a building, would kick you in the ass and then drive you home to your father so your father could kick your ass. Like that's that's. Uh, it was help people first, and and I noticed that the shift in policing and the ego of of cops was not something that I liked. And dude, quite frankly, you look at the world like, what could happen next? Like, what evil shit is going to happen next? And, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. We actually have a joke that the Onion is going to have to start doing real news soon because they're losing. <laughs> They're losing all the other shit. You see the locusts, the, the Sahara dust plague. Now, <laughs> there was a crow. Go go Twitter this. The crow attack in Houston. Like, this is Alfred Hitchcock, the birds. The crows start, like, attacking people. It's going down, dude. The rapture's coming. You want oh, to get bored again, man. I'm kidding. <laughs> I actually, I, I literally tweeted today that if Jesus doesn't come back at the end of 20, like, that's the only explanation I'll accept for this year. <laughs> Jesus fucking being reincarnated. If JC makes his encore, it better be pretty soon. I'll tell you that right now. But yeah, it, I mean, we've been building up. We have we have been. I mean, look what's been <laughs> happening the last few years. It's been pretty insane. And just to clarify, we are a right-leaning podcast, but we're more just a not-woke crowd. We're not like Alex <laughs> Jones, and I have the documents to prove it. We're not like that. <laughs> we're just kind of, you know how it is on our end. Of we're course, really of course. Totally Fox News, but we're certainly not, you know, woke, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow woke over here. But, but that being said... <laughs> What well, so, so, so basically, I I decided that I didn't want to look at the world like that, and stand up was something that I equally wanted to do my entire life. Um, so I kind of uh, 
I, I graduated without a degree in criminal justice. I graduated with a degree in uh, business, and I fell into working um, for a music company where I interviewed bands for a living. And it was kind of like podcasts before there were podcasts. It was like uh, like 2007-ish. And um, I kind of, you know, I took a, a, a big Stern influence, a big Conan influence, and, uh, and that picked up to the point where when I got laid off, um, you know, I kind of had a, a taste for the blood of making people laugh. And then um, through watching <laughs> a, a bunch of stand-up specials, I was like, man, I got I to gotta quit wasting my fucking time. So I opened up um, a book of jokes that I had been kind of like taking notes on. And then I wrote. And then, you know, 2010, I, I just started. So that's that's really – it really took me having no direction for the first time in my life to find the direction I should have gone in. Wow. So I'm, I'm with you there. So it's good to know that background. I'm sure though, it actually makes it a little easier for me to kind of dictate how to go through this uh, sport of trees I have here is these notes, quote unquote <laughs> notes. But really, it's only just a guideline because I'm sure we're going to go where the crow flies. But no, that thing makes things a lot easier for me to understand. So I appreciate uh, your honesty there. Um, when did you realize, was there, where, just, we'll, we'll get past this, but I'm curious. What was the exact moment in time when you realized, I quit. I'm going on a stage with a microphone, potentially get fucking bananas thrown at me as I tell jokes. When I when... vividly remember this moment. It was November 2009. November what? My birthday uh, November. Was fuck. It the 18th? I, 18th? Let's just say. You know what? For the sake of this, for the sake of your notes, because I don't want you to tear another piece of paper out, it was November 9th. Damn. Uh, <laughs> um, no, so I had been watching a. Um, a Wanda Sykes stand-up special on HBO. It's called I'm a Be Me, and I watched her just engaging with the audience. And this was the lowest point of my life. I was laid off from music. <laughs> I was behind in my rent. Uh, I was being kicked out of my house, and I had just gotten chlamydia. And so that was, <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God, dude, it's the exact, and, and that was the exact moment I was like, I need to start doing what, I think I should be doing. So I literally, um, <laughs> when I tell you, I saw that special and I went, dude, I can fucking do this. And I was like, it, it, from that moment, it was laser focused. I got off the couch. I went upstairs into my room. Uh, I got that book of topics I had been writing. And I, I wrote a 22-page set for 15 minutes, fucking front and back. And then I edited it down to 10 minutes. And then I memorized the whole thing. And then, uh, and then March, March 6th, 2010, that was my first show. Wow. Where was that show at? Uh, that was at the back of a bar called Pianos in Bloomfield, New Jersey. So I, I kind of started in like the urban room scene um, where the only shows I knew were like, you know, uh, I guess it was like predominantly black comics that would be on it. So I was always, I was always like the, the white dude uh, on the show, and I kind of came up in that environment. So I did a couple shows couple shows in, like, the urban scene in, like, Bloomfield, Newark area, and then one dude took me under his wing. Actually, dude, so my first show, someone heckled me, and I, I like, laid into her so bad that she got up and left, and the whole room applauded me. Hell yeah. And I didn't realize I could do that. So, like, I found it harder to remember my material than to just be me on stage. 
So once I realized I could just be me, I was like, oh, this is, this is what I need to be doing. So my second show, someone heckled me, and I brought him on stage trying to be like, no one's going to heckle me. And he was a fucking comic, and he fucking destroyed me on stage. <laughs> and luckily, luckily, I was, you know, I was always good at, like, crowd work. So I, I was like, you know, I wrote this whole thing. Like I, was like, I was like, this guy's not real. I wrote this. And it was like a funny moment. So that dude took me under his wing. Uh, and he, he booked me on one show and then he booked me on, um, he introduced me to the new talent director at Caroline and then Linda Smith, that's her name. She kind of took me under her wing even further. And then I had been in New York, but when I started touring, I went down to Philly. I would play Laugh House where Kevin Hart and, uh, two Ray Gordon started in South Philly. Uh, and then, you know, eventually I'm jumping ahead, but, uh, eventually when I met Carlos Mencia, I... I've always just, I, I don't know what it is. I always find myself being like the white dude. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I can kind of relate to that. I went to not a predominantly black school, but uh, I mean, I was only white kid on the basketball team. But it does, like I wasn't there. I'm not saying you weren't good at comedy around the brothers, but I'm just right. saying when the white boy comes in the game and plunks a couple threes, the brothers oh, yeah. And I, oh, mean, yeah. I was like the Steve Kerr of my school, but I never played it out pretty good. <laughs> I was like seventh, eighth man, but uh, it was cool being the only white guy. But there is something about being the only white. We have a couple of brothers on the podcast. One actually uh, plays down in D.C. Uh, he's actually whiter than me. He like hunts hogs and goes bass fishing. He's from inner city D.C. It's hilarious. We call him oh, Uncle, Uncle Granddaddy Public. Oh, he's the best. But uh, he, he's, uh, you know, he, um, we, we go back on that regard. But I think that I do know what it's like to be that white guy, but it's right. really different on the basketball court because most of the time my white ass is on the bench where I belong. Or as when you're a white guy and you're doing comedy, your ass is not on the bench. You're in front of everyone. Oh, you yeah. You, you were predominantly in front of an African-American crowd? Um, I don't know if it was so much the, the crowd, like the demographics of the audience, but I had performed in predominantly urban audi- like uh, lineups for a lot of when I wow. first started. And then when I started going on the road um, and I, I don't know, man, it's just, there's something about like, and it's not really in terms of like, look, you can't take this as like me saying fish out of water is like, I don't belong in a certain setting. We're all the human race. I get all that shit. What I'm saying is like being the only white dude in the lineup is like being a fish out of water in that setting. And you're kind of, I don't want to say looked at like that, but it's um it's a situation where I learned very quickly. Like if I wasn't confident in myself, I was gonna get fucking eaten up. Like it, they're rowdy fucking shows. Rowdy, you know, rowdy audiences come to uh, that uh, I don't know that comedy circuit. I guess you could say. So it's like I was always. I know. Uh, I know that I'm different than what this lineup is, but I'm gonna tell you right now. Uh, I'm just as fucking funny, and if you try me, I'm going to shut you the fuck up. And that's always who I've been. So it's like you just have to, like, kind of embrace that, uh, who you are. And that's the most important thing within that circuit And uh, is, like, being fucking confident is the key. And that's really comedy, you know? You got to you, – you can't ask the audience if you're funny. You have to tell them you're funny. If you ask the audience you're funny, you give someone a chance to say no. You can't give them a chance to say no. You gotta, you gotta tell them who you are. 
Um, wow. Wow. Can we, can we dive? Okay. Can we get in that real quick? Can you get, what do you mean? Okay. How do you tell someone you're funny? That's, the that's way that you say something. Deep. The way that you say something. If I were to go, does anyone ever do this? Or if I were to say a joke in a very insecure or meek manner, and I'm not sure if it's going to get a laugh and I'm dancing around it. Or if I were to say this sentence to you, and this is what it is, and this is how I feel. No one can argue that. It's a, it's the delivery. It's your confidence. It's knowing it's going to get a laugh. Uh, that is the change in everything. You can't dance around a punchline. You can't, you can't tiptoe up for something. You have to, you know, you got to go guns blazing. And I'm not saying like overbearing with energy. I'm just saying you got to be confident in your shit because if you're not the audience will sense that and they'll decide whatever they want. But if you're confident, like, man, this is, and you know, it's funny. I'm not just saying be confident in unfunny material. If you're saying something that you know is funny, you better say it. Like it's the funniest fucking thing you're ever going to say because the audience is going to believe it. Like your tone, your delivery, your energy is all interpreted by that audience. You know, comedy clubs, uh, comedy audiences love a confident uh, comedian. You don't want someone that isn't sure if they're funny on stage. I, I couldn't agree more. When I did uh, my little thing, and again, you're probably going to be like, what are you trying to one-up me? Absolutely. No, I'm, no, trying, no. I'm trying to tend down you. Somebody said <laughs> that I couldn't do a 15-minute stand-up at the Kick and Chicken in James Island in Charleston, South Carolina when I went to school, and I most certainly did, but I made damn sure to stack the front row with 30 people that knew me, and they would have laughed <laughs> regardless if I said Amy Schumer vagina jokes. They would have laughed. <laughs> Uh, at anything I said, so I stacked the deck. But yeah, I think um, no, I, well, well, that's another I, I, way to be confident. confident. <laughs> I, I kind of cheated. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. No, that's another way to be confident is by having people, uh, <laughs> having people that you know are gonna laugh at you. Stack the deck, baby. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. That's what Bill Belichick does. <laughs> that's all I know. And I'm down here in New Orleans. I'm a big Saints fan. Fuck the Patriots. But um, so let's move on here. So, and I have to ask this question too before we really get into the burn sheet here. Who's your biggest comedic influence? I know you've been asked that 10,000 times, but yeah, go ahead. Um, Gino Visconti. Well, okay. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. So Gino, so it's so funny. Gino was, Gino's my oldest friend in comedy. And uh, I mean, you know, off stage, he's, he's also my best friend, but like he, I've known him. He was the first person I met when I started doing stand up. So, he is definitely one of my mentors, but we just are, uh, we're, we're more brothers uh, at this point than anything. Um, I get I, that. Honestly, you know, I was kidding, right? I was just oh, of course, dude. Oh, please, <laughs> shit on him all you want. I don't give a fuck what happens to him. Uh, <laughs> here is, it's so funny to, to say this because it's like, when you think of comedic influences, you think of like, oh, I watched Chappelle growing up or I listened, all right. Chris Rock, um, I listened to that OJ album religiously growing up. My dad had that cassette in our van, but I wouldn't call him my biggest influence. For me, and it's so crazy to say this, but like Carlos Mencia is easily my biggest influence because I met him when I was four years into comedy and I, I've toured with him. Uh, you know, March was my 10th year doing it. And, and still to this day, like literally, you know, I'm supposed to be on his podcast tonight at eight and we were just texting about it. Like 
you know, that's a dude that saw me do well with an audience and turned me from a host and crowd work comic into a very good stand-up comedian. And he took me on the road. He taught me technicalities. I, uh, you know, like I ran material by him. Uh, and you, like, can you dive into that real quick? Technicality. Yeah, for sure. Can help me understand what that means? Um, in terms of like how to technically perform to a bigger audience in terms of, you know, play to the back of the room so you don't disconnect the back of the room from the front of the room. Oh. Um, making sure you perform to balconies and theaters. Uh, waiting that second to, for the laugh to get back to you at a theater, um, interacting with the audience or engaging with the audience so you connect uh, at a comedy club. Look, in, in New York City, it's very easy to connect with comedy clubs because they're not the biggest room, so it's all an intimate performance, and it's all raw shit. When you're on the road doing a funny bone or an improv or a comedy zone or you know what have you, they're very big rooms. Uh, they're, you know, they're three, three to 500 theaters and they're not theaters, they're, they're clubs. So it's a completely different type of connection with that audience. So he taught me how to include from the back of the room to the front of the room, um, speed, uh, how to wait for certain laps, how to, um, you know, delve into, uh, physical comedy to help enhance your, you know, your actual writing, all this sort of shit that would have taken me years and years and years. He really took me to comedy boot camp to the point where, um, you know, I wrote my entire album, my debut album on the road opening for him over two years. And it was just, I had proposed to my wife. We were getting ready to get married and then we got married. So it's every, it's like a snapshot of that point in my life. And it was like everything I was going through, I was just, performing in front of like comedy rabbit fans. So it was the perfect situation to get up and perfect material. By the time you would go to somewhere on a Thursday and by the time Sunday came around, you know, the joke is like, you know, damn near finished because you've had perfect audiences every time to, to try different things and to, to figure out where exactly the laugh is going to come and what needs to be reorganized to enhance that laugh. So he, I mean, I, I for sure went through the school of Mencia, just like Joe Coy, Brad Williams, um, Bobby Lee. Uh, you know, these are all dudes that uh, uh, Cristela went on the road with him and really, like, cut their teeth on his audiences. Uh, so for me, I, I'd have to say him. If you listen to my album, you could totally hear a Mencia influence. And, um, you know, like, my newer stuff is, is more me finding – uh, I guess myself on stage more than writing a good joke and figuring out uh, what works for me. Now it's more of like um, where I'm at in my life and what I want to talk about. And uh, I don't know, kind of, I guess stepping back from that and figuring out my own direction of uh, of building my own audience, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's, it's, you know, for us listening to this, you know, we, we definitely are, we're a sports gambling podcast predicated on, interesting people and we'll have almost anybody on here as far as being interesting that right there the last i don't know five minutes you just went on technicalities is something that everybody could kind of look at that and probably pull something away from because i never even thought about that what's the difference between a balcony and uh the back of the crowd and all that shit i have no idea 
I just know when I, when I did my 15-minute thing, I just stacked the deck, right? Bunch of aces in the front, laugh at everything. I give everybody 10 bucks. Boom, I'm the funniest guy on campus. And then I'm, I'm undefeated, though. I'm one and up. I mean, I got <laughs> without getting uh, – I was uh, out of there unscathed. But uh, um, Well, here's, here's to, the difference. If you get shot in your top hat, you're in a balcony. Wait, what's that? I said, here's the difference. If you get shot in your top hat, then you're probably in a balcony. Yeah, a little Wilkes Booth there. I got you. Yeah, okay, <laughs> took me a second. I'm not the sharpest tool in the chat. I'm sorry. Down here in Louisiana, man, you got to give us, you know, we, we kind of bend the curve on the test scores. You know, but, uh, a little 1700s humor for you. Yeah, no, I like it. It's good, it's good man. It just took me a minute. But, um, okay, so uh, before we get out of the first, you know, the first segment here, and you've answered a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about later anyway. It doesn't matter. But Artie Lang, I want to talk about Artie. So I'm fat. Artie. Oh, Jesus. So I read his book, Want to Bet. I'm a degenerate. I'm actually pretty good at sports gambling. Um, I'm actually in college football. We're not going to get into that. Pretty good. Most would agree. Uh, Artie, absolute degen. I read his book, Want to Bet. Like I said, between uh, just the drugs, the gambling, the insanity, the unions with the mafia and the nuts, it, you know, it, just how crazy it was. The last chapter in that book, chapter 17, uh, says if you hit, you play. Uh, basically, you could read that last chapter in his book and understand the entire book without reading it. And I'm not saying you should do that because I thought it was wildly <laughs> entertaining, wildly entertaining. I had a flight to Seattle. Let's put it this way. I have a third grade reading level, so it took me four hours to read it. And, you know, by the time I got there, boom, it was done. It was great. And I had about 17 vodka sodas on the way up there, whatever. Well, you got well, you got to drink a jack in, uh, in water if you're reading an Artie Lang book. I know, but sometimes the brown water gets me a little, you know, I, I can do a couple shots of jack when I drink it consistently. The brown water typically puts me uh, in um, the state penitentiary, I guess. But I was, I'm kidding. But um, can you tell me how you got into – Without, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it is. What is your relationship with Artie? How'd you get with Artie Lang, who at one point sat aside to the king of radio, Howard Stern? I know. Um, It's insane. Uh, Artie is one of, it's so funny. We're not extremely close. Could you get in touch with Artie Lang today if you wanted to? Yeah. I mean, yeah, last time. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So, well, here's the thing is like, so Artie and I, Artie's put me on almost every radio show besides Stern that he's had. Um, I met him because I opened up for him at a police benefit. And to get this, this is how fucking stupid this industry is. So I had um, someone found out I was a comic in the PBA, which is the Police Benevolence Association. And they contacted my father and wanted to book me for a fundraiser where I roasted my dad. And it was very fun. <laughs> the following year, actually, dude, believe it or not, so so me and a buddy, we also did that, and we had to take down a lot of that roast because the politicians uh, were calling and getting very upset about some of the material. It was very funny. Uh, so the following year, they booked Artie, and they wanted a local opener to pair with him, and they brought me back. So I opened for him. Literally, Stefano had just started opening for him, Chris Stefano, and I knew Chris from when I started at Caroline. Chris was the next generation in doing guest spots and opening for, like, Richard Lewis. So he met Artie. Artie took him on the road. I knew that. So when I met Artie, I had just been like, oh, you know, uh, my buddy Stefano, um, 
they started opening for you. Like, you know, a good kid, whatever. And he was like, oh, I love Chris, blah, blah, blah. And Artie just went, give me your number. Uh, text me this week. If I can help you out, I will. So that's literally, that was the start of it. I didn't text him until an article came out. And you're going to laugh at this. Pat Dixon, who you obviously know from Compound Media. Uh, Pat Dixon's wife is Mandy Stadmiller. She used to write for the New York Post and has a relationship with Artie and wrote an article about the two of them getting clean together. I read that article and I texted Artie because I'm such a diehard Stern fan. Artie was like my greatest radio influence growing up. Uh, so I texted Artie saying, hey, man, saw the Mandy Stadmiller article. Uh, I love it. Great article. You know, so glad you're doing well. And he texted me back. Uh, Thanks. Let's grab Colin and have dinner this week. And I went, holy fuck, he has no idea who this is. <laughs> and so I texted him back going, this is Kevin Dombrowski. And he goes, yeah, no, I know. I thought we were talking about uh, you working with Colin Quinn one time. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, definitely. I was like, I don't know him to ask him to dinner. And he was like, well, anyway. He was like, you know, I'd love to see you sometime uh, if you want to hang. And I was like, fuck yeah. So he brought me, I went to hang with him and Nick DiPaolo when him and Nick had the Nick and Artie show. Nick DiPaolo is one of my favorite people. Uh, he's not great, woke, dude. He's, he's not woke. So great. So I hung out with them at their show. And um, was like uh, like helping Artie write like punchlines for some story that they're actually you know what it was about Colin Kaepernick getting drafted by the 49ers in the very beginning and it was crazy because he had written a um, an essay saying when he grows up he wants to be the quarterback of the 49ers so Artie was writing all of these like really fucked up punchlines about it and he was like <laughs> he was like hey Ken come over here and help me you know figure stuff out. So that was where it kind of started. So he would always be like, hey, man, you know, keep in touch. Let me know what you got going on. That's the kind of duty he is. Like, it, once you're friends with Artie, you're friends for a fucking lifetime with him. So I would randomly text him here and there uh, if I saw something, you know, about him. And then, I shit you not, man, one day uh, I was working at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse in Times Square. My now wife was the hostess and I was a server. And she sat Artie, dude, she sat Artie in my section. And I turned around and he was there. And I'm in a full fucking like monkey suit tuxedo. (laughs) And I'm like, no way this is happening right now. And I went up to the front and I went to be like, who the fuck, what's going on? And she went, hey, did you see who I sat in your section? And we were not friends at the time, uh, Molly and I. Uh, my wife, and I went, uh, why the fuck would you do that? And she was like, what do you mean? Aren't you a comedian? And I was like, yeah, he's the one person I know through comedy, and now I'm in a fucking tuxedo waiting on him. I was like, get the fuck out of my face. I was so fucking pissed at her. Wow. So I went up to his table, and I uh, I basically, I was like, dude, I'm not going to be able to concentrate unless I get this out of the way. And I went, and he was with his uh, Adrian, his then fiance, and I was like, hey, I didn't mean to bother you. And I was like, dude, I don't know if you remember me. And he, he saw Kevin, my name tag, and he went, Dombrowski. And I was like, yes. And he was like, oh, are you still doing comedy? And I was like, yeah. He goes, I didn't know you work here. I was like, yeah, you know, I just moved to the city. I'm trying to, trying to get up more. 
And he goes, you still have my number? And I was like, yeah. He goes, well, text me in a week, and maybe I'll have you on my show. So fast forward, that was like a July. Fast forward to October, I was on the Artie Lang show. And then that went so well, I was on with Florentine. And then the next time I saw him was around the city at the stand in January. And he was like, I ran into him. Uh, He was like, hey, man, you were great on the show. Come back on. And so it's kind of been like that. And then when he had his podcast, uh, I was on his podcast a lot uh, out of his place. Me, him, and Gino were on a lot. And then uh, it kind of just went from there. He's, dude, he's just he's a guy that gave me a first shot when no one would. And he's a guy that always, like, if he has something going on and we run into each other and it's like a big bear hug, he's always like, hey, take down my new number, you know, keep in touch, let me know what you got going on. So that's kind of the relationship with him where it's like, we never, like, you know, we never, I don't go over his house just to, like, <laughs> to hang, but it's always been, like, such a, like, um, to say professional relationship, I don't mean, like, lame relationship, but he's, like, he, professionally, he's always looked out for me. If there's anything that that dude can do for me, he, he will do, and, like, I've always fucking appreciated him for that. Well, in his book, it's funny you say that. Actually, it's not funny you say that. It's not surprising you say that, because... In that book I read, you know, he was actually as insane uh, as much of the D-Gen that he is, as am I, which is why I like him. Um, the difference is I think I actually won when I bet, where he probably doesn't. <laughs> the difference <laughs> is that he's got a big heart, man. He even talks about, like, if he wasn't as, and there's a couple chapters in the book where he talked about if he wasn't as, I won't say, like, uh, you watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia by chance? Uh, Vaguely, every now and then. Well, there was this one where they called him a philanthropist, and they played his play with a full-on rapist, but I didn't know if you saw that. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but I think that, you know, for him, I won't say he was a philanthropist, but, like, you know, he would help out his people. If his people uh, needed money, even when he didn't have it or he had it, knowing he's not going to get it back, he would give it to his people. And I'm, I always have a soft spot for people like that that just take care of their, you know, their own. And that doesn't matter what color, what religion, what ethnicity sure. you are. I don't give a shit about that. So he's got a good heart. It's just, you know, I think, you know, he's just an example of, you know, just drugs got the best of him. It's, it's, it's almost possible to, to argue that. I mean, yeah, he's, well, he's just someone that loves everyone else more than he loves himself. That's the problem. Thank you. That's what I was asking. And if you read that book, you realize, like, man, you just hate yourself. And this is when he was on prime, he's on primetime Stern, right. bringing those, like, ludicrous L.A. strippers. He would fly to Vegas, and they're waiting for him outside the plane because they know the ones that he picks are flying back to the Howard Stern show with him, and then he's going to want to get that lap dance from scores from her, right? So exactly. This, he's over here like like the sheriff Nottingham and Robin Hood, you know, you, you, bring your friends, <laughs> and just basically picking who he wants. But anyway, crazy that you know Artie like that. Man, I'd love to meet that guy one day, but anyway. Uh, we talked Dude, about- I would, I'll tell you, it, like that scene from Crashing, where he meets Pete Holmes and then they're eating at a restaurant and then he invites them onto his podcast. I've lived that scene. Like I watched it and my wife and I just looked at each other and we were like, man, that's so fucking crazy. Wow. That is man. It's crazy. No, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I, it, it's, we're not very far degrees of separation away from places we think we can't be, which we'll get into uh, eventually here with you. Um, totally. We can skip a lot of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. I mean, you know, I do want to touch on this. No, no, I, I brought, you know, I said I had Chuck Knobloch on for all, you know, this kind of put us on the scene, you know, four-time World Series champion, almost five, We're AL Rookie of the Year. He has all kinds of accomplishments. Good friend of mine now. Um, you know, he hated sports agents. 
And I just want to know, like, do you have a comic agent? If not, what's it like? Are they scumbag pieces of shit as well? <laughs> I have a freelance agent that if he gets me a gig, I pay him the commission on whatever he gets me. Besides that, I have like a commercial manager. It's it, it basically it's a commercial agent. Um, but <laughs> this is fucking hilarious. I'm not going to say his name, so like I can't get in trouble. But he's filed under commercial management, so it's not like a technical agency in New York City. It's like a little loophole. Um, <laughs> so that's pretty funny. So I have those two dudes um, that help me with stuff. Uh, and again, it's like, it's kind of found money, whatever they book me on. I, I give them the commission on that, but like a full-time agent, no full-time manager. Definitely not. I had one, I had one that requested a meeting. I was over, I was staying at Mencia's house in LA and, um, how is Mencia's pad by the way? Just curious. His, his house. Yeah. It's gotta be pretty tempted out, right? Oh, it's fucking awesome, dude. It's, I mean, it's exactly, it's exactly what you would think it is. It's not, it's, it's like, um, it's like luxurious, but also like comfortable and lived in. It's not one of those places where like, you don't sit in a room, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. like we could play cards in like any room in his house and it would be, it would be comfortable and fun. Uh, I love, I love staying with him. Uh, his family's the fucking best. His wife is like the sweetest fucking woman I've ever met. His kids are awesome. Um, you know, they've had my wife and I out. We had Thanksgiving at their house one year. Uh, we were out for his uh, his 50th birthday party, which is fucking insanity. Everyone, I mean, I've never been so hungover in my life as after that birthday party. And flying back from L.A. to New York. Uh, dude, we, we, we flew in on Friday. We flew out on Sunday. And Sunday I was so goddamn hungover. We got back Monday. My wife and I were like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. <laughs> you know, at least you probably slept during the plane ride. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. My wife always tells me, like, better get some sleep so you can get up for the flight. I'm like, no, I'm going to get bombed. I'm going to wake up hungover so I can sleep on the plane. I don't care if I have a business trip or not. Everyone acts <laughs> like they – by the way, man, can we just talk about these new sex? Well, and by the way, I'm not trying to sell you some, some funny joke idea here, but, like, people that actually think they work on planes – I just want to pour water over their heads, kind of like uh, people uh, did to the cops in New York under your awesome Mayor de Blasio segue <laughs> coming. Uh, nobody works on an airplane. You sleep on airplanes or you get drunk on airplanes, and that's their only purpose. I'm sorry. I'll never uh, relinquish that thought process. I mean, do you agree? Come on. So you like I, – I, I do. You flew back from California to New York, and what? So you just had a good 72 hours of just – Liver pulverizing, right? I mean, yeah, not- dude. I mean, he was even like, um, he was like, hey, I want to fly. He, so we were up in um, Nyack, New York, doing Levity Live uh, the weekend before. And he was like, it's my birthday next weekend. And he was like, I want you and Molly to come out. And uh, he was like, I'll just get tickets now. And he was like, I'm telling you. Uh, he was like, I want to do that. If you guys will let me do that. Like, I want you guys there. And he was like, you are going to be fucking hurting, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And he was like, those are two things I promise you. On Monday, you're going to be cursing me out. But on, on Saturday, we're going to have the fucking time of our lives. And I was like, that's all I, I mean, need to know. You sold me, sold me on Saturday. So, yeah, I was doing <laughs> yeah. regardless of what came after that. You know, I, exactly. Uh, yeah, so, so I was – dude, it was like I forgot how to walk when I woke up on Sunday. I really – I – 
have never been so fucking hungover. And you jump through three time zones. Got to add that in there. A little dash that. Pow! A little dash Exactly. Dash. Exactly. I'll, one time, there's one time I was flying home from Seattle to New York, and I got, I got wasted beforehand. Like, we went from a restaurant nice. to the plane, and it was just doubles of Jameson. Absolutely. And I passed out, and I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to sleep the whole time until I passed out. And then I, uh, and I woke up still drunk. And I had to run to the bathroom of the plane, and I fucking puked everywhere. What airline? That, oh fuck! It was probably United. Oh good, because that that just represents their their customer service anyway. Right. Um, well, well, the, well, you know, obviously they're a racist airline, so it was just really getting them back to the Asian community. They should community. be canceled immediately. Funny you talk about Jameson real quick before we uh, move on to this next topic here. You know, my and I. This is for having you on, but I think you may laugh at this. So, you know, Catfish Friends or Gino Visconti. I know Gino loves his Jameson, right? Drinks it at 8 in the morning on in-hot water or whatever. <laughs> and uh, Gino has his sports picks, and he's terrible. And <laughs> he <laughs> I does. couldn't agree more. And, uh, so he bets me uh, five shots of Jameson, the Cowboys, to beat the Saints. So I went to the game with an amazing sign. Dak went to Firefest. Amazing sign. I'll test you a picture of that. It was unbelievable. Um <laughs> Then we go uh, to New York, and Gino's on the wagon. He's not. Uh, like I told you, I know we talked about this earlier, but I had to take these five shots of Jameson at that. What's it, Sully's across the street? Uh, Sullivan's, yeah. Sullivan's from this cute little redhead Irish bartender by my side. Yeah. My brother took two. I took three. Felt like I was back in college, but um, <laughs> it was uh, it was definitely uh, a different experience. But I, I, I wanted to get more into your experience with Gino. I don't think from our time span, our, our time points, we have time, but. As far as before we move on, though, I just got to ask you this quick question. Maybe you want to like, y'all relationship right now, I find him absolutely hilarious. And I know I already said this, and I'm going to recap one again. I don't care. I love this non-woke comedy thing. Where do you fall into this non-woke comedy scene, um, you know, as the pendulum swings? Because now you have to be really careful, right? Right. You don't seem to be woke. You don't seem to be kind of like, you know, not woke. You'll still say some things that could be considered, right. I guess, offensive, which we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall as a comic on the comedic scale that is now, in my opinion? Absolutely goddamn ridiculous. But where are you? Uh, it's a great question. I am directly in the middle. And Perfect. that is exactly where I want to be and exactly where I belong. I And, and here's the thing. I teach, I teach stand-up comedy. And um, when I teach my beginner classes, I um, I, I it's tough for me to say, like, uh, you know, th- I, I give my philosophies, meaning this is where I fall as an example, not saying any student has to go one way or another. It's all about finding your process and what works for you comedically. Here's where I lay. I don't like woke comedy because I think it's pandering. And I don't like uh, necessarily, per se, anti-woke comedy because I think it's shocking. I think a lot of it is shock value without a punchline. And for comedy, for me as a stand-up, I like to consider myself a pure stand-up. Uh, I don't, if there's no punchline, it's not a joke. And for me, it's all about a great punchline, uh, a great premise, and a, not necessarily a great structure, but a, a, a well-polished, worked out jokes. That's where I like to lay. And I, so 
I guess what you can say for me, my philosophy is I may not say the most shocking thing to stand on stage and say it because that's not the punchline for me, but I'm never going to pander and say what people want me to say because that's not who I am as a comic. So I like to say what I want to say, but find ways to say it where I can get away with it, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, nor should you. Obviously, Gino would be, and by the way, I do find him, and I wish I could have spent more time with him, but he doesn't know me. He probably thinks I'm some crazy nut, but at least he, <laughs> hey, man, he bought me the five shots. My brother, we've met Berg. Uh, we'll get to Cumi in a second. I mean, yeah. no, he's a, I mean, I think he's hilarious in general. I think he's a very funny guy. Uh, I think I, I think he's hysterical. Um, well, well, so here's the thing. Let me, let me just uh, clarify what you're saying here. So with, with Gino, see, I don't consider Gino – the the latter. I don't consider him the the anti woke. What I consider Gino is an edgy comic with something to say. Now, if you don't listen to comedy, and I've said this for ten years, if you listen to words and you just take them at face value, you'll be offended deeply by Gino. But if you listen to what he's saying, you will appreciate the comedic genius of him. Absolutely. I hope I didn't take that away. I am, I'm definitely offering that to that statement you said as an addition. Yeah. For sure. For yeah, sure. Like, I mean, dude, he's wrote, I mean, doesn't he write? He's, doesn't he write for like roast? Like people like yes. come yes. to him for stuff, right? He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So Gino, Gino does, uh, like I know, uh, uh, whatever. He's written for like Nikki Glaser on Comedy Central roast. Like he's written for, a bunch of people. Did he write my... Shaq or something? I think he did. Uh, Maybe not. Probably. I mean, he's done a bunch of sports figures. But one of my favorite things about mine and his relationship, and he'll 100% back this up, is he he's a brilliant roast joke writer. His premises are things that you would never even think to bring up in a roast. And every four are spectacular. The or I'm sorry, every three are spectacular. The fourth one always just kind of misses in a certain way. So we have a tradition that whenever he wrote someone, he will write his whole act, his whole thing, and we'll either meet up with like a bottle of whiskey and tune up the last one, or he'll send it to me ahead of time, and I'll just go over it and reorganize certain things, or like that fourth joke where I'm like, eh. I'll, I'll be like, hilarious, brilliant, incredible, meh, and he'll go fix it. So I fixed that fourth one. So it's That's like I would I would say like a fourth a fourth of his roast jokes, him and I co write together. Uh and then I get to go and watch a joke that I just wrote work on like the, the roast of Gary Busey at the Friars Club. That for <laughs> me is like so fucking cool. No, I I can only imagine that. Yeah, no, that's I actually uh have something in here later. I'm talking about borrowing jokes. I've always wondered how that works because I'll, right. I'll make it. I have a good. I have a good uh, seg to that. Um, well, hold on. Let me let me wrap up this Gino conversation. I'm sorry, my bad. Man. No, 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 no. So here's the synopsis. This is if anyone wonders what Gino Bisconti's act is, uh, and I've said this forever. Gino Bisconti is telling you why you shouldn't be offended by the word cunt while calling you a cunt. That is. <laughs> calling you a faggot, right? <laughs> exactly. That is what Gino Bisconti is. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't be offended by this word that I'm about to call you, just to prove the fucking point. So, you know, a percentage of that audience needs to be offended in, uh, by him for his act to really lift off the page, because it just proves the whole point. I, I, I'm with you 100%. I wish, I, I wish we could have... 
I think if, if him and I got drunk and watched college football, NFL football for a whole day and got bombed and lost a thousand dollars together, we'd probably have a bond. But uh, you'd, you know, you'd yeah. wake up with a sore asshole, is what would happen. Wow. Okay. Fine. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Good Lord, I like that. All right, well, actually, I don't like that. I like that joke. But anyway, that was. Good. <laughs> uh, geez, um. <laughs> I almost had some wine come out of my nose. I'm sorry. Dr. Cabernet come out of the left nostril, so that usually stings a bit. Uh, stings the nostrils. Uh, so you know, I do want to talk about you know. As we get into the COVID, we could do a whole hour on this, and I've decided, you know, as we're going through, this is way more important than the COVID. You know, who wants to talk about that? But I do want to talk about your mayor. Uh, we talked about a right-leaning podcast. I don't care if I – now, I classify people as, like, you know, there's right-leaning, and then there's rightist, alt-right, whatever, and then there's liberals, and then there's leftists. We have a couple of liberals on our podcast. We don't have any leftists on our podcast. I consider Bill de Blasio an absolute maniac leftist. It's very hard to debate <laughs> that. And, I mean, they use a stand-up comic. I'm not trying to get political stature or, you know, go over here and placate that. What I'm saying is, like, you know, do you, as a resident of New York, is this guy just, I mean, is he totally off base? Is he out of control? Do you think that this is not, like, what, what's your as a New York resident and comic, is de Blasio off his rocker? You think this is all part of some, some big thing, or you just think it's the status quo, we need to stay inside, and you're cool with it? I, God, you know, it's so, it's so weird to even think about all of this, because, you know, my wife and I say all the time to each other, it's like, dude, we don't know what to believe and what not to believe, because there's so much there's so much information and there's so much of a lack of information at the exact same time. So it's like, it, it, it really is. It's a guessing game. I think, I mean, de Blasio to me is like a, like Cuomo's stepson. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't, I don't, it, it's like, I, I don't really care what he has to say. Uh, so it, it, because like, I'll listen to the governor of the state that's got the power over everyone and hear what he has to say. And then, I may agree. I may not agree. Uh, personally, there's, you know, look, there's a couple things that I don't agree with Cuomo on, but I will say he feels transparent. He seems like a regular New Yorker. He seems like he's got our back. De Blasio talks, and I go, D just shut up and wait for Daddy to speak. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Go, you know, take his suit off and <laughs> and go in the other room. And wait for Daddy to come home. That's we're not I talking feel. about Gino, Daddy. We're talking about Ashley. No, right, right, right. Yeah. no your your actual father, Governor Cuomo. Uh, it's just such a weird thing because De Blasio kind of like he just repeats stuff. Like I feel like he does a daily press conference because Cuomo started doing a daily press conference. So it's like I have a theory. Need... He's a pollstering though. I have a theory. He has sixteen responses, and somebody sits behind him <laughs> and pulls it and goes, ah, <laughs> flatten the curve. <laughs> Uh, right, right. Council, you know, it's like, all right, you know, I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. And, I like the black. I'm not racist. Yeah, we get it, man. You know, you like, I think it's a, and, it's a clown show to me, but yeah. The, is, the 16th know. poll, he goes a couple words in Spanish. <laughs> he loves that. Yeah, let's, let's get that in there. Thanks. A lot. I know, I know. He just that one. It's time not to get too political. I understand <laughs> that, but uh, I do want to talk about a few things before we move on next. You know, I want to talk about compound media. So, compound media is where. My brother got me, who got me on to you, and he's a huge uh, comedy guy. 
And I've always known about Opie and Anthony, but I know that you have a relationship with Cumia, correct, Anthony? Cumia, you know each other. Yeah, yeah. Like, and and here's the thing is, uh, I would say that, like, Artie and I are closer, uh, which is funny. Um, I do, I know Ant through Gino, and, you know, when Gino and Berg started in Hot Water, and then uh, I became a regular on Morning, um, and, like, that whole crew, I know, uh, you know, uh, all of them. It's a bunch of them. Uh, and then I got uh, linked up. Kumio was supposed to do my podcast before the, the pandemic, and then everything kind of went into panic mode. Um, so, like, we talked uh, briefly on there, but it's one of those things where, um, like, it, on one of his many uh, Twitter handles, you know, like he followed me a bunch of times, and like, like he'll reach. Oh, he keeps getting, he keeps getting canceled. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. Uh, like every now and then, he'll retweet a joke that I have, which is uh, super nice of him. Uh, you know, we're friendly. If I see him, uh, it's nice. And then I did his, I did the Anthony Cumia show uh, with uh, Landau and Fiore. I watched and, that. Uh, dude, I fucking laughed the entire day over how fucking fun. That was, I mean, Dave Landau and I performed together in the city all the time at, at Gotham. So I did not know that. And I'm not trying to cut you off, and I'm sorry. Yeah. I was a big faux pas. You guys had, and my brother was like, you need to watch this show. You guys had a certain back and forth. It was a very, I would call it like a very not, somebody not trying to win a ping pong match. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just very, we're going to volley this thing for five fucking hours. We're not totally. Who wins? And it was a it was a harmony of of wits. It was amazing. I'm sorry. I keep going. No, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, Dave. I'm such a big fan of Dave. So I host at Gotham Comedy Club. Uh, that's like uh, you know New York Comedy Club is my home club. Gotham is is right there, and uh, and Dave Landau closes a lot of the shows that I host on. So it's always us on the side, just like cracking jokes at either whoever's on stage or what's going on with the audience. It's uh, and we just literally just make each other laugh so fucking much, um, that when I got on the show, it was actually because of him. He, we were at Gotham and we were messaging each other. We DM'd each other on Twitter afterwards because I was laughing at one of his jokes, and um, and he was like, "Oh, dude, come and do, come and do the show sometime." Uh, and he was like, "Let me know when you're free." And, I, and it was right before the album came out. It was a pre-sale actually. And he was like, oh, perfect. He was like, I'll have the booker reach out to you. So Dave's the reason that I even got on the show. And so we we had a great report. And then Andy Fiore uh, is the host of the Raw Report on Sirius XM. And I've known Andy. Him and I perform around the city a lot, too. So it was just like, it was just a place of, like, super comfortable, uh, uh, creative environment. All of those guys will volley with you. No one's, like you said, no one's trying to win or spike the ball down and shut everyone out. Everyone just wants to keep the joke going. Uh, so that, that, that show for me was, uh, I mean, by far one of, uh, that was one of the best shows I've ever guested on. Cause it was just nonstop fucking laughs. Um, so, so, I, so yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Cumia. And actually when I, when I went to, you know, watch Berg, who's also Berg, we have to mention it. Berg's hilarious. <laughs> I got him to do Uncle, excuse me, Isis Faggot, F-H-G-G-O-T, not the F-A-G-G-O-T. He actually did it, and it was hilarious. But we can agree, Berg's pretty funny, right? I mean, just funny. Oh, dude, Berg's great. I mean, I would say 
Honestly, out of everyone on Compound Media, including Gino, I probably perform with Berg more than anyone. I would imagine. He's not, yeah, yeah but I, I could see that. But he was funny. And um, we came back later, and, you know, we did Ant's, we listened to Ant's show, and Ant, Ant probably had the COVID. This is like late October, or mid-October. Oh, I we remember could barely that. talk. Keith the cop after the show had to put him over his shoulder, basically carry him to the subway. And then the next Monday, Artie Lang comes on. And I'm punching my brother. I'm like, we missed Artie Lang for a for a, uh, a, but he did sign he did sign the book um, that he wrote, which I want to talk about. You know, permanently suspended. You know, yes. uh, that was a big deal for me. I like Anthony Cumia, you know, an awful lot. You know, and I look back at his book, chapter 29. Again, the last book, page 216. This is what it says, and I quote: I thought, I thought satellite radio would give our show the Luxury of freedom of speech. I certainly didn't think I would be fired for saying something on social media that had nothing to do with the place I worked at. And that's the next thing I want to get into now is I love compound media. And that was some bullshit I thought happened to Anthony. And you guys may not agree politically on some things, and I get that. But, like, this, we can just tie this in right now to this woke shit and this cancer culture. I mean, look, I'm not in the industry, man. I can, I don't know. But, I mean, I've seen – I've had coworkers get fired from the business I work in because of some social media stuff, and they get canceled, and people get canceled. Do you think this, like, in the comedy world, you have to be a tad bit worried, right, about this cancel culture? Let's say go back 20 years and find something you did in, two, in 1996 with your fucking cousin when you were right. 13, and you get canceled. So through what Anthony said and, you know, what I just kind of – you know, transpire through that. I mean, is is that a real threat to you sometimes? Because if um, I it would be for me. Look, I mean, you definitely have to be aware of what you're what you're saying. And and look, man, I understand that times change. I get it. Things that you would say 20 years ago, you you wouldn't say now. And so that's going to happen. That's going to play into comedy, and rightfully right rightfully so. It's our responsibility as comedians. Um to know what we're saying, you know, uh, it's all about it's uh, economy of words and stand up. And if you're careless with your words, you know, it's probably going to bite you. Now being edgy and talking about a subject should not be something that you get canceled for. Uh, no subject is off limits with comedy, but your joke depends on the punchline and the timing of it. You know, um, you know. The I'm whole, not like, talking uh, about Michael Richards here, right? No, <laughs> no, no, totally, totally. But like, like, okay, what Ari Shafir said about the Kobe thing. Like, um, Ari Shafir makes fun of celebrities that die. It's a thing that he did. It's a thing that he does. And it's pretty funny, by the way. Oh, it's very funny. It's super funny. <laughs> it's it's like an anti joke. It's not, it's it's a rant that he comes across like he's being serious when he's joking. To the point where it's like, it's funny because you realize how sarcastic he's being. And he did it with Kobe. Unfortunately, timing matters in comedy. And he did it the day he died. And it really came back to fucking bite him. Now, I can understand why that happened. Because if you say something on stage in a comedy club, timing absolutely matters. It goes into it. It's delivery. It's timing. But... The people that were calling comedy clubs that booked him and making death threats and bomb threats is completely fucking over the line. 
And it's the fact that, like, your dude, this dude said he was a joke. He even went on his, his Instagram and he explained the joke and what it was. And whether you find it funny or not is not the debate. The fact that you felt it necessary to threaten someone's life because of a joke is fucking a level of insanity that I can't comprehend. And so when it comes to taking the severity and the quickness that people jump on certain people for what they're saying is the problem with this. And it's, look, it's your responsibility as a comedian to know exactly what you're saying. I think about every tweet that I send out of making sure that it could be only taken the way that I want it to be taken. And if anything is in, uh, like, um, ambiguous, it's because I want it to be. It's like I might send a tweet that taunts the left and the right, depending on how you read it. And I like that because for me, I'm like, oh, I just, like, I'll send a tweet and go, this will be fun for me to watch people fight each other. And the left will like it for this and the right will like it for that. That I understand. And that's fun for me to do. But for someone to send a tweet and then get jumped all over and dragged because of the fact that comedy was different 20 years ago and you're, you're playing it according to the rules now, it's like there's so many different, um, there's so many different angles of canceled culture that it's like uh, it, it really is for me, it, it all comes down to the severity and the quickness. Like the Chris uh, D'Elia situation, there's a lot of fucking evidence there. And I'm okay making a, you know, uh, making a personal opinion about that. The Jeff Ross stuff, I'm not sure that I agree with that. About Louis C.K.? Louis C.K., I disagree very much with what he did. Uh, I don't think he shouldn't have a career, but I do think that he owes more of an apology of what he did. And it's because there were very clearly more than five women. Uh, Sarah Silverman said on Stern that she that he used to do it in front of her, which makes her six. So he apologized to five women, which is, uh, okay, great. Um, but then there's more stories that are out there that, like, everyone, like, has heard and knows. And it's like, you know, if Sarah said that, then shouldn't you apologize to anyone, not just the five that came out against you? And it's like, look, it – it may not be illegal. He may not be charged with something, but I'll tell you right now, I'm having a daughter in October. And if someone, if someone asked my daughter if he could do that, and regardless of whether she said yes or no, he did it, he wouldn't have it anymore. Yep. I would rip it off his fucking body. Um, oh, he would. Oh, you know what I mean? And, and here's the thing is like, I think a lot of it is hearsay because I think he, he gave that initial apology and kind of went away. And he's been vilified for what he talks about on stage. And that's because everyone just wants to hear his side of it. And he doesn't acknowledge it. So everyone's mad at him talking about school shootings and transgendered. But if Bill Burr were to do the set that Louie did that got him in trouble, no one would have said anything. And that's because everyone wants to hear what Louie has to say about all of the allegations. So for me, I disagree with what he did. I think that he should clarify his statement. I don't think he should be ostracized in terms of like not being able to grow as a person. Cause at, at that point, when do we stop, man? You know, like think about it this way. If you do something to a family member, let's say if you, 
if you say something or do something that offends or wrongs your own mother, would you never want to be forgiven for that? Or would you want a second chance? So that's what needs to be addressed is they're really burying this dude into the ground. And I'm not going to say that some of it isn't his fault for not clarifying, but I'm also not going to say like, you know, if he doesn't think he owes it to anyone, then that's his own journey. Uh, But I don't think that he should not have a career. I think, uh, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I think I'd like to see more from both sides. I'd like to see him clarify. I'd like to know more of the story and stop listening to rumors. And at the same time, I would like people to uh, allow other people to fucking grow. What's the point of this world? If you don't learn from your fucking mistakes, then no one would be who they are now. So for me, it's like give someone a chance to make amends. You know, and that even, look, dude, I'll, I don't, I'll fucking uh, call it what it is. I open for Mencia. That dude needs to be allowed to fucking live his life, bro. Whether you think, you know, he uh, took a joke from someone or not, whether you believe him or not is not the question, regardless of right or wrong. Like, it's been 15 years, and that dude uh, is still, like, three weeks ago, a month ago one of his shows received bomb threats. That's fucking insane. That's a level of insanity over a fucking joke, over a joke. You're going to threaten someone's life. That's a level of uh, committing that I, I don't have the capabilities of understanding. Yeah, I don't either. And uh, wait, bomb, a bomb threat. And I'm like, what? Yeah. At the, um, the, the West Palm beach improv, uh, cops showed up when he was uh, about to perform for the first time after COVID, and uh, and someone had called in a bomb threat. Um, and that's bull. That's you know this is a, this is a bullshit. This is the shit that I you know what you already got now. Uh, Kevin, I've been drinking a little house Merlot over here. Now I need to start <laughs> drinking shit. Really get a little um, anchoring to get a little insane down here in South Louisiana. But look, I mean. That is, a, by the way, insane. Um, can I you know. Do you – and look, I'm, I'm not trying to pivot on this, but as we're talking about, like, you know, kind of handicaps and comedy, which you kind of can't say, do you feel as a white – I mean, do you identify as a him, her? I'm sorry. Let me go ahead and ask you before. I, <laughs> I don't want to – you're a him, him, right? No, I – dude, I, I identify as myself. Yeah, <laughs> I don't – Okay, well, I didn't I want don't, to take any – Presumption. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have labels, and it's not whatever, dude. If if that's your life, if you feel like you you want to have that, then by all means, have that. But I'm I'm not I'm I'm not that person. I don't because I don't I don't want to generalize myself as anything but myself. Well, good because neither do I. I just wanted to check it off with you, man, because I I'm ask <laughs> a question now that I mean I. People may listen to this, and we are growing at an astronomical rate right now as we redo right. this podcast. Um, and I think that I have to ask you this: you know, as a white male comedian, yeah, you know, do you feel kind of limited? I mean, obviously, it's a double standard. Right. A black comedian can say the N word. We know that. I don't want to get mm-hmm. into that. I don't want to go over there. You can't. I get that. That's the most obvious double standard probably on the planet. But do you feel you're limited on kind of stuff you have to say? on where you could get canceled, whereas somebody else where it might have a different skin color or genitalia, 
may get away with that, and actually it's funny. I know that's a uh, hard question. I'm just curious. Yeah, I, look, I mean, there's a lot of different angles of that as well. I don't necessarily feel like there's stuff that I can't talk about. It's what you say and how you say it that really uh, that right. matters. And so if there's a topic that I do want to cover, um, I just may need to work a little bit more around it to get my point across. And, but that's, that's the world. That's like that with anything. That's not just comedy. It's, uh, it's knowing how to explain something uh, as the person that you are to get the, the point across that you want to. For, for me, it's like, I don't, I don't believe me being a, and I'll even throw in one further, a bald, straight white male. <laughs> I don't believe that, uh, that anything I say is more likely to get me canceled than if I were another gender. That's, I, I don't believe that. Um, I think that there's definitely industry um, standards and in what, in what industries are looking for. And don't take this as me going, oh, they're not looking for me. I have to work hard. That's not what I'm saying at all. But just like any other industry, there is, you know, sometimes there's an emphasis on a certain type of person being hired for a certain type of job. That's in comedy also. You know, I've gotten casting reports that are like, you know, minorities are encouraged to, uh, you know, heavily encouraged to submit for this. And there's like programs uh, to give people equal chance. And that's fine. And, and for me, it's like, you know, that's the world playing catch up to itself. Um, and so I'm not mad about that. Uh, I think I think comedy is all about finding your own opportunities. I don't think my my gender or my race is going to hold me back any more than anything else. You know, I'm also 35. I'm married. Uh, you know, those are also two things that, um, you know, the TikTok generation <laughs> may not want to <laughs> see my comedy because of that. And, and so I know. So. I think it's your duty as a comedian to find your audience. There's, dude, there's an audience out there for anyone that wants to talk about anything. I am 100% convinced of that. And I've got the analytics on my, my album and my social media to prove that there's an audience for me. It may not be this giant audience where, you know, I'm monetizing millions, but I have a very engaging audience that I interact with daily. And uh, it's my job as a comedian to, one, entertain them, first and foremost, uh, two, grow as a comedian uh, and an artist, and three, build that audience to the point where I can sustain that uh, as, a, uh, as a career. And so that's, you know, look, uh, that's, the, that's the goal, isn't it? You know, to get to a level where an audience wants to come see you on the road and you're selling out and you're making good money. And I don't mean selling out uh, in any other way than you're selling your shows out. Uh, and you're, you're making a good living based off of an audience that will consume all of your uh, content. That's why Jim Gaffigan is who he is, Mencia, uh, CK, uh, Seinfeld. You know, how can Brian Regan and Anthony Jeselnik exist in the same industry? Because they each have their audience. And it's your job as a comedian to either find or build that audience. And so for me, I don't worry about what the industry's looking for. They've never, as far as I'm concerned, the industry's never looked for me as an individual because I've never really been, um, you know, I've never really been like, um, 
an industry type comedian. Like like Mark Norman had talked about for late night sets, joke writers work best. And I've always just talked about my life and whatever form of joke that takes for that subject is the direction I go in. So like, I don't consider myself a late night comic. I don't consider myself, you know, I don't think I'm a trendy comic that uh, would, you know, be on Comedy Central necessarily. I think that uh, it is my job to build my own audience. So based off of, the fact that I've never really, I've, look, I've never submitted for festivals and I've never submitted for a writing job or a late night show because I've always thought I'm best at being myself and I'm not going to conform myself to what works best for a network or um, a festival or a show. I've, I've always thought, okay, let me just, let me just figure this out on my own. And the bulk of my career was focused on just getting good and that happened and I put out an album and uh, it was number one on iTunes, which I felt incredibly lucky to have. And now for me, it's like, okay, how do I use what I built now to build an audience and sustain this and grow it? Uh, I guess in a way that, you know, if, if I were to do Conan a bunch of times, it would, my name would get out there. Well, how do I do that without doing that? How do I build my own audience? You know, that's where I look at guys like Andrew Schultz uh, as a huge inspiration and Jessica Kirsten as a huge inspiration. And these are, these are comics that have done it for years. They've put their, they've uh, earned their dues. You know, they paid their dues, they've earned their way and they've built their own audience and that's uncancelable, you know? And, and that's, I guess that's, that's really what the new goal is, is to build your audience that will have your back no matter what. And there's no company that can cancel you at that point. Okay. Well, um, uh, with that, uh, there's a few things I wanted. You talked about Schultz. Do you know him? Yeah. He's uh he is a pretty much, that's a pretty much self-made good story as much as I can understand. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, there's, there's, um, definite like breaks that he's gotten along the way, but it's no, there is no comic that's successful that hasn't gotten uh, a few breaks, but that's a dude that learned how to break through. You know, I, I asked him what his big moment, like what, what made, what helped him break through. And what he said to me is that no network would fuck with him. And so he decided to just do it on his own. And he was like, the second I put a special up on YouTube, and I found that there was an audience that wanted to consume what I was putting out. And he's like, everything changed for me. And so that to me is like such a huge inspiration of I, of feeling like, man, there's, I believe in what I'm doing. And even if there's not like a, uh, an industry market for it right now, because everything runs on trends, you know, every, every company runs on fashion companies run on brands and trends and, what uh, what's in fashion this fall may not be in fashion next fall, and comedy's the same way. Industries run on trends, and if you know a uh, like a a network trend isn't looking for what I have, but I believe in it, then I'll just put it out there and I'll find that audience. And that's that's kind of where I've garnered the philosophy that I just told you is like taking from dudes like that, looking at what he's done, and like I said, Jessica Kirsten, she's 
been around forever and paid her dues. I've never, I've never seen a comedian have more support from other comedians than Jessica Kirsten. I don't know a single person that doesn't find her to be one of the funniest people alive and support everything that she does. I, I, um, I was lucky enough when her Comedy Central special came out to beat the comedy seller uh, with her uh, at the around the corner. There's a lounge that they have, and uh, and we all watched it uh, with like a big group of people. And at the end of that, the people watching the special in the bar gave her a standing ovation. Like that's 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 a fucking level of encouragement and support that I've never seen before. It's, those are the people that I look to that I was, it's like, okay, they figured it out for themselves. And um, that's what comedy is. It's all, it's a fuck you to everything else except for what you believe in. <laughs> oh, I like that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's hilarious. We can just, well, I tell you what, you've actually covered most of the stuff that I wanted to do um, ahead of this. So I only have a couple more things. And that, by the way, what you just said there is, probably the most prolific quote of the entire um, interview we're going to have here. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry to come no. so early in this interview. Oh, man, look, this has been great. I mean, just come in and spit that fire. I don't care. But I do want to say this. There's, you know, there's one question I want to ask you and then a couple other ones. You know, there's unwritten rules in baseball. You know, mm-hmm. if you hit a home run, you can't look at it. For sure. Yeah, you know, all the stupid shit. You're from Jersey, but I know you grew up watching the baseball and everything. Absolutely. Are there unwritten rules of comedy besides the obvious, like don't steal my jokes? But is there some other stuff we wouldn't know that would oh, be like, all right, man. don't do that. Like, don't look at that home run, pal. Yeah. You, you see, a... don't look at that home run, pal. You see? <laughs> That's so interesting. That's a great question, man. Um, Unwritten rules. Fuck. Uh, I guess. You never shit on a comic that you're bringing up as a host because you'll get fucking eaten up. I um. <laughs> I would imagine. Dude, I was on tour. I'm not gonna name names on this because uh, yeah, don't, don't. it'll be obvious. But I was I was on tour in L.A. and a dude that was an old opener was asked to host the show so I could stop posting and just do a guest set. And I don't think he was very happy about it. And he did it and it was kind of half-assed. And then he got, uh, he got embarrassed uh, by the headliner that was like not happy uh, about the job that he was doing. So the next person he brought up was supposed to be me and the headliner kind of like, so basically the guy said, give it up for Kevin Dabrowski, but there was like, no one was prepared. The DJ wasn't prepared and whatever. <laughs> so it's like, dude, it's not that I need fucking music to go off to, but it's like a big production, this tour. And so like, it was interesting where it caught everyone off guard. And it was a half-assed introduction. And I felt like it was a slight towards me, but I don't give a fuck. I'm, you know, look, I'm from New York. I started doing comedy in New York. It's not, you can't really phase me like that. Uh, like being on tour to me is a luxury. So I, you know, I walked up and I, I started doing jokes already. I was like, Oh, no music for the white guy. What a fucking racist club, blah, blah, blah. And it was fun. I was getting laughed. And then the headliner was not happy with that. Told me to get off stage, went back on stage with the old opener and then kind of like, uh, 
corrected the behavior and was like, if you're going to do this, do it right. And this dude was like, you know, I never needed fluffing when I opened up for him. And like, kind of like, kind of threw some shade at me. And then before he brought me up, he was like, you know, this next comic is the definition of white privilege. Uh, You know, he wears boots on stage, but they're not dirty. He probably grew up in the Midwest, tried to do comedy for a little, moved back in with his parents. And the whole time I'm fucking steaming, dude. I am so angry. Ugh, you already and, got me, got me a little angry. I'm drinking again. This house is low. Maybe a little too much. But, so he goes, uh, he he goes, give it up for the wonderful, the fabulous Kevin Dombrowski. Like like real douche douche spot left me in a hole. So I go up on stage and I start shaking everyone's hand in the front row, like playing up to that character. And uh, and the guy, the kid is enormous. The dude that did this to me, he's like easily 350 pounds. Uh, so the first thing I said was give it up for diabetes and <laughs> <laughs> the whole club fucking went nuts. And, uh, and I just like kind of ripped into him. <laughs> and I, I think what I said, cause he was in Ontario, which is a super Latino community in Ontario and California and LA. And I think what I said is I may not be a cholo from, uh, from LA, but, uh, but I am a white dude from East Harlem. So watch your fucking mouth. Uh, and <laughs> it literally just like set the tone. And I think I had a 10 minute opening spot and I got the light, which means you, you should start to wrap up. And I was like, fuck you guys. I'm doing all the time I want after that fucking introduction. So I did like 15 minutes. I was just like fucking sweating bullets. Cause I went so fucking hard. Uh, and I had a good set, which is not fucking easy to do in that situation. So if I had to think of one unwritten rule, it's you, you're always supposed to show um, like the, the bond, like the, keep the illusion going of the show. So you're supposed to show togetherness. Or you want, as a, 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 an audience member watching the show, you want to believe that all the comics are buddies and this is fun and there's no politics, there's no drama. It's like the dream job to look at all of these people make strangers laugh as their career. So it's like any dissidence in that, uh, kind of sets a negative tone, but uh, in terms of unwritten rules, you know, don't blow the light, don't go over your time because you're a real dick if you do it. It's got to come out from someone else's time, you know, or the show's going to run late, which is not a good luck because the next show will start late. So stick to your time. Let's say be respectful to each other. Um, you know, things like that. It, I'm not going to say don't do crowd work during your set. If that's the type of comic you are, that's the type of comic you are. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, I, I guess those are the two big ones. Stick to your time. Be respectful. So, quick question. I have this uh, caveat called joke borrowing. Okay, can we just go over here before we wrap it up? Go for it. Let's say that you and I are on tour together, and I yeah. have some joke, and it's just, you think it has potential. But I just keep uh, you know, I get a couple chuckles, and it's a good joke, and you see it as, like, something that could be great. Well, let me segue to my line of industry. If you can't get a certain account in sales after, uh, let's say, six months, they pass it on to someone else. As in, all right, he can't close it. Maybe you can. Is there <laughs> some sort of unwritten rule of comics to where, like, if Gino has a great joke and you know how to kind of kind of mix it up or something or whatever, whatever, heavy. Right. And you go to him, you're like, hey, Gina, look, man, look, you have 
this joke has run its course with you. Uh, <laughs> I know it's yours, but I'm going to go ahead and borrow this for life. And if I get rich off it, I'll give you 10%. Is that like something? I know that's uh, a ridiculous question, but I. That's I, a huge no no. Wow. That's a, yeah, that's a massive, you'll get fucked up for doing something I like that. I figured as much. I just thought it'd be fun to ask. Yeah, well, so here's the way around that is usually, and this is great. This is what I do love about the comedy community is if you get off stage and you're kind of struggling with a bit and another comic watches it and they have an idea of how it could work, that comic will pull you aside and go, hey, dude, have you tried this? And, like, kind of help right. you finish that joke. So, dude, there's a bunch of comics around the city that, like, if I saw them do a joke, I'd be – I would laugh because I'd be like, oh, I remember – like, oh, I gave them that idea. And it's, like – it's basically, like, whoever does it first, that's their joke. But there's pl- – like, if you were to go see a random comedy show, I'm willing to bet any amount of money that any of those comics on those shows – have any jokes in their set uh, written and co-written by other comedians. And that's just what comedy is. It's always like, hey, I've got a tag for that. Like, I have an extra joke that you can use in that. Or someone will come off and be like, man, I can't figure that joke out. And someone's like, oh, have you thought about this? Have you tried doing this? And that's a big big thing in comedy. It's like every comic kind of helps each other out. Um, There are some comics that, like, dude, if you go, hey, can't, you know, have you ever thought about this? It's like mind your fucking business type shit. And that's, that's kind of like a douchey thing where it's like, man, I'm just trying to fucking help you. Um, that's why, like, I, I usually won't say anything unless that comic's my friend because I do know that some comics take it personal uh, and don't want suggestions. There's, you know, there's also egos that go to play where it's like, I don't need help writing a joke. And it's like, well, you know, I think you do. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. I think you need help with that joke. Uh, but, yeah, if I have a buddy that's struggling with something, I, I love watching him and being like, hey, man, what, what about this? Why don't you try saying this? Have you, have you thought of this angle? And, uh, and that's a fun thing. That's, that, that's the way to, to get around it. That's cool. So, I mean, I, again, I, I just don't know. But uh, that is an amazing answer, it's, especially for people like us that have no – clue on you know what what that's about not that we're having this whole like what's a life through a comic podcast but i mean i think that's unless you know what speaking of that, let's get to your podcast so you have a podcast right now you also have a special uh i, I typed you in in the preview before you even got in here trust me but uh let's take the opportunity for you to pipe in your special and your podcast so kevin go ahead and do your best for sure <laughs> for sure um well, my uh, my debut album is out right now. It's called High on Molly. Hello. Uh, yes. It's, uh, well, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Uh, debuted in the top five on iTunes. Uh, went up to number one twice. Uh, so I am very, if uh, if nothing else, I'm very uh, lucky to have uh, experienced that. But the feedback, um, uh, unbelievable to me, has been uh, nothing but positive. Gotten great reviews on the album. So uh, if you do want to listen to that album, it's available literally everywhere you consume comedy. Uh, it's on iTunes, it's on Google Play, all the other ones. And uh, if you don't want to uh, pay for it, you can also stream it. Um, and it's available Apple Music, Spotify, uh, Pandora, Title, all of the streaming apps. So it's there. And then every week I do a podcast called Just Joking, 
where I break down what's happening in the world uh, with another comic by making fun of everything. So it's basically just a collection of news stories of the week. Uh, and it's two comics and my producer. Uh, if you are a fan of the Misery Loves Company podcast uh, with Kevin Brennan, his producer, Adam Hineker, is also my producer. Uh, so myself and Adam sit down with another comic weekly and uh, and just riff on news stories, just basically getting back to making people laugh. That idea was basically there's enough long-form interviews and uh, and I'm tired of watching all these comics fucking fight with these stupid podcast wars. Uh, I I just want to make people laugh. That's all I want to do with my life. So why not do that weekly? So that's been great. We've had Dave Landau on. We've had, uh, obviously, Gino. Every episode makes fun of Gino in one way or another. Um, the last couple ones, Liz Mele, Carmen Lynch, Paul Verzi, uh, Rich Voss, Bobby Kelly. Uh, Jim Florentine. It's been uh, it's been a really good run right now. So we got a uh, we got a good July coming up with guests that uh, I'll uh, I announce each guest as the episode comes out. So uh, it's a fun little surprise every week for everyone. So it's a big surprise for us. We love it. We think it's funny. Um, and you brought up Gino again. You know, Gino should come on the sports antidote. He might actually learn something or two about how to win a pick. I don't know, but, you know, I guess uh, his sobriety when I was in New York kind of shunned me away or shooed me away, but I'll tell you. I'll get him I'll get him to do this show. He'll have a blast with this. So you can't be this guy. We're meant for each other. So I sound like a okay. We're meant for each other, oh, God. Yeah. I just meant he, we're on the same level of D-Gen. Look, you had Mark Norman on. Um, we talked about this, and yeah. he's, been on your, he's from New Orleans. He's a New Orleans guy. And he is. A, he went yeah. to De La Salle. He went to high school with a buddy of mine. Oh shit! And, and right now he's larger than life. Uh, he's huge. He's opening for Seinfeld now, right? That's yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. And he's yep. been on Joe Rogan twice. And I want to close with this. And by the way, before I bring up this douchebag alliteration, I don't know what alliteration means, but it seems <laughs> appropriate for what I'm about to say. So if I'm wrong, which I probably am, I don't care. But you're only one degree of separation away from the biggest podcast probably on the planet, which is Joe Rogan. And I know you know that. Yes, I am. I'm multiple degrees of separation. No, uh, you're not. Oh, wait, what? I'm sorry. Well, yes, you. yes. So, so one, but I have a bunch of one degrees. And probably the biggest of all time. I opened for Carlos Mencia. Yeah, uh, I mean, at one point he had, let's not bring up the dark days there, but I mean, at one right. point, I mean, he was the biggest comic uh, probably in America. And Kevin, look, I know everyone, whenever you meet somebody and they probably say, oh, I think you're really funny. Look, man, I, like, our group, our podcast group, really like you. And there's eight of us. We have some marketing people. And we're going to get, we're growing again as we rebrand. We don't just appreciate you coming on here. Like, we think you're really fucking funny. And Thanks, I, man. Yeah, we all do. And, I mean, the fact that you, you're so close. You're so close. Like this, Mencia, <laughs> you're right there. I mean, you got this guy on here who's on Joe Rogan. We we, we can all agree Joe Rogan's the pinnacle. You go on Joe Rogan. What's the boost there? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is that's pretty much the new the uh, Tonight Show for uh, for comics. Getting getting the couch is like getting Rogan now. So my point is, I'm such a scumbag. I would actually I would try to tell someone like I'm gonna tell someone that you did something crazy if you don't. If I had 
like if I had some like garbage on them, I'd be like, yo, you're piping me in, or this is going on Twitter. <laughs> I'm kind of a scumbag like that, but look, man, Every, everything is, in its own time, man. Everything. This comedy is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's all about getting your your bearings and figuring out where you want to go. I spent the bulk of my uh, career just wanting to be good and knowing that once I'm good, the rest will follow and it won't be as difficult as it is being good at stand-up comedy. And so right now I'm just, uh, I'm enjoying uh, the next stage after, you know, uh, most of my career has been towards making that album and and the success that it had. So uh, now it's just figuring out uh, the next turn and where to get that audience. But I'm enjoying it, man. It's, it's, It's a good time. Well, good, man. Did you enjoy this uh, time with your boy Danny Bell? You cool with that? Absolutely. This is fun, man. I Look, I uh, sorry there was uh, more rambling than punchlines, but you were asking no. some very introspective shit. <laughs> That's what I want to do, man. We want to have you back on. And look, inevitably, what we want to do is we'd like to have other people on. You think that we kind of fall into the same, uh, the same gene pool. But look, man, at the end of the day, uh, we appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, I, I've listened to your special, Hilarious. I'm a huge fan of yours, and uh, maybe in a few months you can come back on. You know, we'll see how the COVID, where the COVID <laughs> wind takes us, right? Absolutely, you know? man. Uh, yeah, dude, I'd love to. Right, man. Well, thanks for coming on, Kevin, and uh, we look forward to having you on again. And, and go out there and crush, bro, because we're all rooting for you. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Can't touch this. Can't touch this. Thanks for joining us on Man to Man. Interviews of the Sports Antidote, and a big thanks to Kevin Dombrowski for coming on the first official one of the reset of this podcast. Be sure and catch the Sports Antidote tomorrow night. Like I said, we talk about MMA, Deshaun Jackson's crazy ass. He has lost his rocker. Dickie Salvo will be on with the Drunk Neighbor to discuss some good bets for the MMA ticket. Pretty good looking card. Um, pretty, some pretty big fights coming up as well. We have a lot to discuss on that episode. Be sure and catch that. Ned Ryerson's coming in with the No Cuck Zone. How do you, you can't miss that for nothing. It's going to be hilarious. Be sure and follow us on Instagram at The Sports Antidote. Be sure and follow your boy Danny underscore Belt with a Z on Twitter. And be sure and follow the sports page on Twitter as well. The Sports Antidote page, Sports Antidote 1 at Sports Antidote 1. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Keep it real, Antidotians.